Hey everybody, what's up? It's Kenan Omertag, Associate Professor here at Washington University School of Medicine, Reproductive Endocrine and Infertility Specialist here at the Fertility and Reproductive Medicine Center at Washington University St. Louis Barnes Jewish Hospital. I'm gonna to talk to you today on this, on this episode of the Fertility Insider about insurance coverage and just coverage in general for fertility treatment and specifically IVF. I wanna go over the history of how we arrived at where we are today with how we cover fertility treatments in this country. Because this topic has actually been a passion of mine and it's actually what got me into I think OBGYN residency because I did research in this and I think it's what's allowed me to stand out when I was applying for fellowship in reproductive endocrine because it was an area of public policy research I was doing. So I'm actually going to talk about one of the first papers that I published which was looking at the economic implications of providing insurance coverage for IVF treatments in the United States. And I did this paper with um, some colleagues of mine at Emory and at Massachusetts General Hospital, the Harvard Brigham program. So I think basically in order to understand where we are today with how we cover insurance, uh, how we cover fertility treatment, it's important to understand where we were in the past. And in order to go, you have to go back to the first IVF cycle, which was in 1979. That was Edwards and Steptoe in the UK. You had your first IVF cycle. And what was unique about that was it was not at all performed like IVF cycles are performed today. Um, they were using natural cycles. They weren't using drugs to stimulate the patient. They had no drugs to prevent ovulation. They were just gambling that they could catch an egg before it was ovulated and doing surgery to, in some cases, laparotomy to go get the egg and then inseminate it outside the body and hope it fertilized and hope it grew in culture to then transfer it. So this is 1979 that they were finally successful and they had a live birth. Fast forward to 1980 here in the U.S. And then you had the you had Howard and Georgiana Jones at Johns Hopkins and at Eastern Virginia Medical School. They were the uh, husband and wife team responsible for the first IVF live birth in this country. And again, that's in the early 80s. They used hyperstimulation protocols. So they gave patients human menopausal gonadotropin because Georgiana Jones, the reproductive endocrinologist in the room said, you know what, we should be more efficient and we can be more efficient by stimulating these patients to retrieve their eggs. So what she did was she gave these patients injectable medications and instead of one egg per cycle, they would get more than that, three, four, five, six, seven, or more. The problem was 25% of those patients would prematurely ovulate before they had a chance to retrieve the egg. So as a result, the IVF technology was still not very efficient. It wouldn't become efficient until the late 80s when you had GnRH analogs, specifically GnRH agonists like luprolide that became available to suppress ovulation. So now you had tools that could suppress ovulation, you could grow follicles, and then you would have more control over the process of IVF. You could also then schedule patients using birth control pills to time the scheduling. So at this stage, you're in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, and at this point, IVF is starting to become popular and there's becoming increasing demand for IVF. And IVF is no longer some uh, obscure hospital academic center-based service. It's now available in surgery centers, in private practices outside of the hospital setting. What helped it move outside of the hospital was the advent of transvaginal ultrasonography. That came about in the mid to late 80s. So now you could do vaginal ultrasonography. You could retrieve the eggs vaginally. You didn't have to take these patients to the operating room and do exploratory laparotomy or 
laparoscopy. You could do these cases in the surgery center in the suite next door. All you needed was some outpatient anesthesia. And at the same time in the late 80s and early 90s, the healthcare delivery model in this country is changing. It's moving to managed care. So physicians are moving their practices into surgery centers and more physician-owned uh, spaces in order to retain their freedom that wouldn't last but you could see the culmination of those events leading to IVF moving from again an obscure kind of rare technology to something that actually is readily available. Success rates were better but they still weren't great but there was still this problem of cost. So now it's 1994 and you have your first study looking at the cost of IVF because while technology is getting better, it's still not very great with success rates like 20%. So people are curious, like how accessible is this? Is it still very expensive? Is it more affordable now that it's in these uh, more convenient delivery locations? And what we learned from that paper was that the average cost of IVF was nine to 15,000. So in 1994, the average cost of IVF was nine to 15,000. So it was already pretty expensive at that time. There was a movement after that paper and kind of throughout the 90s to try to push to get fertility treatment covered. And this is where it gets tricky because the first obstacle was, okay, well, first of all, is infertility a disease or is it just a luxury that people have to be able to access this care? Is reproduction a right that people have? So these are the questions that start to pop up in these policy debates and when employers are trying to decide, should we cover this? So the group at Iowa actually, in order to kind of address some of the questions that would come up when payers were confronted and employers were confronted with requests to cover this treatment, the knee-jerk reaction was always, hey, these, these, these treatments are expensive, it's gonna increase the premium per member per month. So the University of Iowa, led, led by um, Dr. Van Voorhis and Dale Stovall at the time, this is the late 90s, they wrote some papers about what adding an IVF benefit to a policy would do to the per member per month premium. And what they found was the cost would raise 67 cents per member per month when they looked at the University of Iowa self-insurance plan. So in the 90s, the University of Iowa added an infertility treatment benefit, specifically an IVF treatment benefit to its plan. And then they found that the increase in per member per month was only 67 cents. Around the same time, a group in Massachusetts looked at their plans and they found that there was an increase in the member per month of $1.71. And then another group looked at it and found it was $2.59. And then a more conservative think tank, the National Center for Policy Analysts, looked at and found that it was $14. Um, but that was making some assumptions uh, based on actuarial analysis. So ultimately, it's not really clear that that the per member per month increase is really as high as a lot of people are trying to make it out to be. That was one angle that was happening. Uh, this is like 96 to 98. And then what there was actually a Supreme Court case that moved the needle a little bit more. So more clinics are coming online in the 90s. People are still advocating for this to be covered, but not really making much progress. Fertility treatment's still taboo. People aren't really talking about it. So no one really knows that many people who do it. Uh, maybe some celebrities here and there. And then in 1998, there was an interesting Supreme Court case. So it was Bragdon versus Abbott, and it's widely cited. Um, but this case is unique 
in that it actually is the only cases in which the Supreme Court of the United States decided that reproduction qualifies as a major life activity according to the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. So you can look at the Wikipedia page of Bragdon versus Abbott, but basically how they arrived at this conclusion was very convoluted, but it's kind of fascinating. It starts with a patient, Sydney Abbott, who has asymptomatic HIV positive and was refused service from her dentist Randon Bragdon. Check out the Wikipedia page. I'm not going to go over it here. But the point is that conflict went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled that, hey, reproduction is a major life activity under the Americans with Disability Act. When that came out in the late 90s, the proponents of fertility treatment coverage raised their eyebrows and thought, this is our chance to get employers to provide fertility treatment. Because infertility is a disease that affects one's ability to access a major life event of reproduction. So therefore, infertility is actually a disability. So there was an effort from 1999 to 2003, there were a couple court cases they didn't make it to the Supreme Court and they ultimately failed but there was an effort that was made to try to get fertility treatment covered under the Americans with Disability Act and force employers to provide treatment for infertility with IVF using the Americans with Disability Act unfortunately that effort failed Sachs versus Franklin Covey so now we're at 2003. IVF treatment is actually getting a little bit better. We're getting better at growing embryos and culture. And more and more states are starting to take on the initiative. At this point, Massachusetts, Illinois, Maryland, they've all passed statutes to mandate employers to provide coverage. And even our neighboring state here in Missouri, uh, our state of Illinois, across the river, is a mandated state. So Illinois has a law that provides fertility treatment up to four IVF cycles and two additional cycles with a positive pregnancy test. So again, in the state of Illinois, they have comprehensive mandates. However, just because you're employed by a company in the state of Illinois does not guarantee you have access to fertility treatment benefits. Because if you are self-insured or you are an employer of a certain size, you may be exempt from state mandates because there are federal ARISA laws that might trump these state mandates. Some other things that were happening that were actually very important was that around 2000 and, in 2002, a paper came out that showed that, um, by Tarun Jain, showed that if you have fertility treatment coverage, you're less likely to have multiple gestations because fertility clinics will be under less pressure to transfer more embryos into your uterus to optimize your success rate. Because still in 2002, 2003, uh, in the early 2000s, success rates were still not that great. So people were transferring multiple embryos in order to combat a lower chance of success. And what was happening was we were getting high twin rates and triplet rates as a result. So this paper kind of showed that if you, it's good public policy to provide fertility treatment benefits so that you can have a lower multiple rate and therefore you can have a lower preterm delivery and fewer bad outcomes and fewer stresses to society. So what else is going on during this time? So now we're in the 2005 and beyond. IVF continues to get better, more and more efforts at states, but there are only 15 states, now 16 states in 2019 that provide fertility treatment benefits, and only a handful of those 15, 16 states actually mandate the same kind of comprehensive coverage that Illinois does. You also have to remember that during the last 
20 years, the rise of unfunded mandates in government has risen dramatically. So an unfunded mandate is basically uh, legislations getting together and saying, hey, we want you to, we mandate that you need to provide coverage for mental health or you have to require coverage for fertility treatment. But the state is not going to provide you any money to help you do that. You just have to do it. So unfunded mandates, you know, you can understand both sides of the argument there, can be popular through uh, partisan lines, honestly, depending on the issue. So you have all this stuff kind of going on in the background, and here we are in 2010, and then here at WashU, our very own Dr. Youngheim published a paper looking at our internal data, because our center is actually unique because we straddle a state line where we have patients who are from Missouri, and then we have patients who don't have a state mandate, and by nature have less access to employers who provide fertility treatment coverage compared to patients in Illinois who are more more likely to have employers that provide fertility treatment. And what Dr. Youngheim found is when she looked at, compared the patients who have a mandate from Illinois versus patients who don't, found that those who had insurance coverage actually were more likely to take, were more likely to be successful than those who did not. So that's a huge statement. So if you, so again, it's good policy to provide fertility treatment benefits, because if you do have them, you're more likely to be successful. And the reason for that is fertility treatment is still expensive. In 1994, it was $9,000 to $15,000. In 2019, it is still $9,000 to $15,000. So if you adjust for inflation, I mean, price has gone down, but it's still expensive. And the reason why people can't continue doing IVF treatments is not just because of the physical and mental toll that it can take after doing multiple cycles, but it's because of the financial toll that it takes. And a lot of people just financially have to tap out. But if they have access to four cycles of IVF, they will have more chances to be successful. With that in mind, that kind of brings us to today where we're kind of look at the landscape and the battles for coverage for IVF are going to be won at the grassroots level and at the private employer level. Lobbying state organizations will be certainly part of that strategy. Federal government strategies, probably not going to in, in the hyperpartisan environment that we are in currently, probably not going to be much fruitful. I think the best energies are spent lobbying employers and mobilizing employees to ask their employers to provide fertility treatment coverage. Letter writing campaigns are very helpful. If you're interested, you can check out Resolve, the fertility advocacy organization. They have sample letters. Ask your local fertility physician. I'm happy to provide people with sample letters. A letter writing campaign to some degree may have been helpful in pushing the envelope at here locally for some of the institutions here in St. Louis. So I think that is where the effort lies. We need more employers to provide fertility treatment benefits. And there's data that shows that people actually want that. And I think as more and more, as time moves forward and people become more and more intimately familiar with fertility treatment, because let's be honest, infertility affects one in five to one in eight reproductive age women who walk in the door and 50% of couples who have infertility have a male factor. So at the minimum, Everybody knows somebody in 2019 that has struggled with infertility. You don't have to go too deep to, on the bench to find somebody who has done fertility treatment nowadays. You don't have to go very far to learn about somebody you may be know intimately or casually that has struggled with infertility. The final thing I wanted to say was there are companies that are adding egg freezing benefits. So you probably have heard about egg freezing benefits. So this is another thing that has come up on the uh, fertility coverage radar where companies are providing egg freezing benefits for their employees. I have mixed feelings about this. While I think it's good to have control of one's reproductive freedom, 
to me, the employees are maybe sending a uh, subtle message to the employee. Now's not the time to build your family. You're here to work for us. You can freeze your eggs, that's cool, but we're not gonna support you in your quest to actually have a family now because that would be disruptive perhaps to our bottom line. There's some cynicism in that line of thinking, but you can't help but wonder, you know, is it because what's the average age of the employee? Are they making assumptions about who works there? That's probably not cool. Anyway, there's some push largely in the tech sphere to provide egg freezing benefits. The problem with egg freezing though is it's not a guarantee. So it's almost kind of like you're saying, hey, I'll give you access to this tool, but there's no guarantee you're gonna take home a baby when you use this tool. So just to give you an example, if a 28 year old were to freeze their eggs and they were able to freeze 10 eggs, that 28 year old has about a 70 to 75% chance of taking home one baby from those 10 eggs. So they might have to, if they get 10 eggs or more, they're probably in good shape, but it's still no guarantee that they can take home a baby if and when the time comes to use those eggs. On the other hand, a 38 year old who freezes her eggs, probably with 10 eggs has about a 30 to 40% chance of taking home one baby. So again, if you're interested in egg freezing, always talk to your reproductive endocrine chronologists about whether that's right for you. So if you're interested in reading more about this topic, you can just Google JRM Omertag IVF and you can find my paper from 2009 looking at the economic implications of insurance coverage for IVF in the United States. And I just wanted to talk about this topic. So if you guys have any interest in how we got here, that paper kind of summarizes it. I'll be curious to see what, what happens next um, and what happens with how we can make this care more accessible to people in the United States. With that in mind, you guys have a good one. Enjoy the rest of the day and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.